Welcome to the Future Healthcare Today podcast series. I'm your host, Matt Langan. The No Surprises Act took effect on January 1, 2022. The act protects patients from surprise medical expenses, but has created tension around payers and providers. This can be seen in the recent case from the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Texas. On February 23rd, the court struck down the part of the interagency interim final rule implementing the independent dispute resolution procedures. And when payers and out-of-network providers cannot agree on reimbursement, the IDR process takes over. While the majority of the rule remains in effect, the changes from this case will impact health plans and the insurers that sponsor them. And today we are speaking with Matthew Albright, who is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer at Zealous, and Kate Brantley, who's a legislative analyst at Zealous, more about this. And Matthew and Kate, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, Matt. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Awesome. Yeah, it's great to have you both. And let's start with Kate. Kate, if you don't mind, can you give us a high-level overview of the case? Yeah, absolutely. So we have an tracking several court cases regarding the NSA for quite some time. And the Texas Medical Association is actually the first in the group to have a decision. So the lawsuit itself is narrowly focused on just one provision of the interim final rule that was promulgated by the agencies last year. And that provision actually has to do with, as you said, the independent dispute resolution process. So when we're looking at that process, the language of the NSA itself listed five factors that arbiters would be considering when addressing how much providers would be reimbursed. And the interim final rule actually took a different approach and focused solely on the first factor listed, which is the QPA, the qualified payment amount. And that's typically the median in-network rate of an insurance company. And so where the lawsuit came in was arguing that this provision to give only a look at the QPA was contrary to what the language of the NSA was intended to do and contrary to what Congress intended for this IDR process. And so the lawsuit was narrowly tailored to just this specific provision. And each of the lawsuits actually that we have been tracking were all focused just on this provision. So the basic integrity of the NSA is very supported and remains intact. But on the decision that came out this last week, the court actually ruled in favor of summary judgment for the plaintiffs, which in this case was the Texas Medical Association and some of its providers. And summary judgment is when all the evidence that has been presented thus far is sufficient to show that there is actually no genuine issue of material fact. There's no need to go to trial. There's no need to go through the entire court process. And the judgment for, in this case, the plaintiffs was a matter of law. And so there were a couple of arguments that you know, we were looking at in this case. And the first one was whether or not the defendants had standing. And so that was the first thing the court addressed and decided that they do have standing. The departments had argued that they did not have an actual injury in this case because it has not happened yet. The IDR processes just started March 1st or were able to start March 1st. And so there really hadn't been an instance of this yet. But the case 
the court did decide to look at the potential for economic injury here and decided that there was great potential for economic injury. And then the second instance, second issue that the court looked at was whether or not the NSA actually spoke to this issue, spoke to the QPA issue and to the IDR process, and whether or not the language was plain and clear, and whether or not this QPA provision that the interim final rule had was contrary to the language of the NSA. And the court decided that it was, in fact, contrary to the plain language. They looked at what exactly the NSA stated. And, you know, it was very clearly listed five factors that the arbiter was supposed to be looking at and had no language for emphasis on just one, which in this case, you know, was the QPA. And then the court also looked at whether the agencies disregarded the notice and comment rulemaking process, which, as you know, is very important for all agency rulemaking. It was not done here. And the court did decide that it was improperly bypassed and that there was a need for that notice and rulemaking comment. And so eventually, you know, the court decided to surgically remove, essentially, it was a very surgical process of removing the exact provisions related to this QPA language. And so it left, like I said, the majority of the NSA intact, left majority of the rule, the interim final rule, in fact, intact, and just took out this guidance that was specifically related to the QPA provision. All right, great, Kate. Appreciate that. If you don't mind, tell us a little bit more about the outcomes of this. That all seems pretty significant. Absolutely. So yeah, as I mentioned, the outcome to this is that the court decided to actually vacate the provisions of the interim final rule that are related to the QPA provision. And so what that really means is that they are essentially at this point stricken. The defendants had asked that this decision be strictly related to just the Eastern District of Texas and just the plaintiffs involved in this case. They had asked for the decision to be narrowed down to not be nationwide, but the court struck that down. So it is, in fact, a nationwide decision at this point. So where we go from here, there are a couple of options. Of course, appeal is the very first one that comes to mind. It is possible for the defendants to appeal this decision. And we, you know, looking at the situation, it's not a guarantee that in the political climate of the Fifth Circuit that that would be something that's particularly likely, but it is, of course, an option. There are also, as I mentioned, four other lawsuits that are currently pending on this exact same issue. And so it is possible that a decision either contrary or in addition to this decision in the Texas District Court would come down. And in that case, you know, it could be a competing decision depending on what the court said. But it's also very likely that at this point with this legislation pending in Texas, the other court cases would ask for a stay and basically hold off on their cases until this decision has been completed, a final action on this case, no matter what it is. And so that's definitely an option that we are looking at. And then ultimately, you know, it is possible that HHS would issue 
a final rule. And in fact, they've indicated that they intend to issue a final rule that might comply with the provisions of this decision. And so that's another possibility that, you know, we're looking at, but it's just at this stage, you know, it's only been a week. So we're, we're not exactly sure where this is headed just yet. Got it. Awesome. Thanks for that rundown there, Kate. Matthew, let's switch over to you. Were you surprised by this verdict? So, Matt, if you'd asked me that three months ago when they first dropped these cases, many of these cases being uh, submitted, I would have been very surprised. We've seen a kind of history of the transparency requirements, which is related to these No Surprises Act, of being very successful in court. The AHA, AMA, they went against transparency requirements all through the Trump administration and they lost. And so it looked like this was going to be set in stone. And of course, the rule was effective just a few months later. But things seem to have heated up. In the last month or so, we saw a lot of action in terms of these cases, these plaintiffs asking for summary judgments. They wanted to see something, an answer very quickly. It was clear that HHS had to kind of figure this out or the courts had to figure this out because these claims are starting to come in now. And it looked like uh, with the Fifth Circuit's politics that this might actually come through. So again, in the last two weeks, we've been like looking for the other shoe to drop. But if you'd asked me three months ago, I wouldn't have given this much of a chance. Uh, interesting, interesting. Now, tell us about the arbitration process and how to really prepare to handle this, if you will. Right. So like Kate said, what the court did was basically very surgically take out like sentences and paragraphs that refer to what the arbitrator in these cases needs to think about. And, you know, if you'll come back with me, Matt, to seventh grade, this is really the difference between like two kinds of teachers. So you think about the arbitrator as two kinds of teachers. Under the previous, before this decision, under the previous structure, it was really that teacher who graded you just on your test scores, right? You had 10 quizzes, you had 10 points each, there was your 100%. And so it was very clear, it was very mathematical, it was very objective kind of methodology. You knew going in, you know, by the time you were two weeks out from your report card, you knew exactly where this was going to land because you had added up your own points. With this decision, we're that other teacher, that cooler teacher, if you will, right? Who, yes, your grades aren't so good. You didn't do so well on the quizzes, but you got some extra credit you could do. You go talk to him or her and you say, hey, can I clean your chalkboard? Can I, you know, I speak up in class. Can you give me extra points? In other words, the grading becomes much more subjective. There's a lot more unpredictable. It depends on the personality of the teacher, right? And really, we're talking about two different methodologies then that have happened, right? One was before this decision, it was very quantifiable. It was based on a number and really as close as the two parties, provider or payer came to that number, that was pretty much the way the arbitrator had to go under that policy. Now the arbitrator now considers five different considerations. You know, a couple of them are very qualitative kind of value judgments like the training or the quality of the provider or the facility itself, right? very much on an arbitrator per arbitrator, who the arbitrator is and their personality might play into how that decision is made. Very subjective, very unpredictable. And the other thing that is interesting is the court then allowed these five other considerations, including the qualifying payment amount, to be considered. But they didn't, because they were removed, there's no weighting of any of these considerations more than the other. So you don't know, given your arbitrator, whether they're going to take the provider's quality or training as 75% you know, consideration or 10% consideration. So it really kind of opens up all sorts of 
a whole different way of arbitration and a whole different way that the payers and providers are going to have to look at that pricing. Oh, great. And let's switch over. Matthew, tell us, like, how does this affect patients? So that's a great question. And in the large, this has nothing to do with the patients. The patients are still very much protected from balanced billing of these out-of-network claims by the No Surprises Act. The questions before the court had nothing really to do with it. Certainly, the arbitration may decide that a payer owes a provider more or less than what the provider was paid, but actually the patient is has already been figured out their cost sharing. Their cost sharing is already tied to basically the plan's median and network rate, and that doesn't change no matter what the arbitrators decide. So really, very little effect on the patients, no effect on the patients, I would say. Really, this is about payers and how much they should reimburse providers. Uh, well, you know, that's a perfect segue into my next question. What does this mean for payers and actually for providers as well? So if you just think again of those two seventh grade teachers, right, you can imagine that everybody in the first teachers, the objective, quantitative, it's all a math problem. That kind of teacher, you know, none of the students are going to go up and ask for a different grade. They already know it's set in stone. They're already stuck with whatever their grade is. But the second teacher, you might have a lot of students getting kind of panicked there in the last couple of weeks. So what we're going to see is really providers see more opportunity to persuade the arbitrator that they deserve a higher reimbursement. So we're going to see a lot more, you know, you think about the No Surprises Act, there's an initial payment that the payer pays the provider. And then there's 30 days where the provider gets to raise their hand and say, hey, I don't like that payment. I think we're going to see a lot more providers take advantage of those 30 days to try and negotiate a better price. And what they'll be doing is bringing really what this court said had to be the considerations to those negotiations. They'll be saying, hey, I'm a provider. I, you know, I graduated from Harvard. I've got great quality ratings, right? They'll be bringing those to the table and try and get a higher reimbursement with an eye to the fact that if those negotiations fail, the provider can raise their hand and say, hey, we're going to arbitration. And then they'll bring those arguments to arbitration. So I think we'll see a lot more providers arguing their reimbursement. And so on the payer side, then the expectation is that they can expect a lot more pushback from providers. They're going to be a, need to be a lot more prepared in terms of defending their pricing. They can't just go forward with what was the equivalent of their median in-network rate and plant a flag there. They've got to be ready to defend those attacks or those negotiating tactics by the provider on things like quality, on things like acuity of the patient, on things like the marketplace that the provider or the payer may have. And so I think both parties are going to have to get more prepared. Payers certainly are going to be able to think about how they're going to defend their pricing and maybe think about if they've got the infrastructure to defend their pricing and arbitration, if you consider the fact that maybe arbitrations may go up. Uh, great. Well, appreciate both of you sharing these insights today regarding this case. And our last question is, is for Kate. So, Kate, do you expect the case to be appealed or really what happens next? Yeah, so that is certainly an option. It's really we're looking at a couple of different options on what happens next. And one of them is definitely appeals is included in that. So it is you know, certainly possible that the departments would appeal this decision. It is, you know, it did take some of the guidance that they had provided out of the interim final rule. And so they are certainly within their rights to appeal that decision. We are looking at, you know, politically, whether that is likely in the Fifth Circuit. It's not 
really something that seems extremely likely that that would be reversed, but it's certainly possible. If you also look at some of the language from HHS that they put out actually on February 28th, they put a memo out regarding the decision and kind of gave us a little bit of insight into their attitude towards the decision and where they were going with this. It didn't speak to any concrete movements, but it indicated that they are looking into this decision and will be, you know, taking into account what was said in the decision and really didn't have a um, particular feel of that they would be, you know, going ahead with the QPA provision or anything particularly combative to this decision. And so it's really the guidance was indicating that they intend to take this and it provide additional training and additional guidance for providers and insurers going forward. And so, you know, they've indicated even before the decision came out that they intend to put out a final rule. The lawsuit was ending on this interim final rule. And so they indicated that they are going to put out a final rule probably in May. And so they very well may take into account this decision and it may look different than the interim final rule. So we're, you know, just waiting to see what happens there. And then in the meantime, we're also looking at the other cases that have been filed on this QPA provision to see what they do if they continue to move forward in their litigation, or if they ask for a stay to wait for this litigation to have a final action. So a lot of moving parts here that we're looking at. And, you know, it's just something that only time will tell. Great. Well, this concludes this Future Healthcare Today podcast interview with Matthew Albright, who is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer at Zealous, and Kate Brantley, who is a Legislative Affairs Analyst at Zealous. And as you heard, they were kind enough to share their insights into the No Surprises Act and its impact on health plans and the insurers that sponsor them. And Matthew and Kate, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, man. Thank you. Our pleasure.